you. Yeah, thank you. Um, when Pastor Cook Pai wrote me about this Mission Sunday, he gave me the title, Becoming All Things to All Men. So I, thinking about a title, I tried to think of something creative to express that. So I chose this title, Step Across, Step Into. Now I realize it actually looks like a dance lesson or something, uh, Step Across, Step Into, and it's not a very descriptive title. But anyway, that is the theme of today that your church team has asked us to look into, which is becoming all things to all, becoming all things to all men. And that classic passage is from 1 Corinthians. So let's look at 1 Corinthians together. You have your Bibles. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint, sorry, but um, hopefully you've got a Bible on your phone or Bible with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. is Paul speaking, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. The weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and... So I just pray, Lord, this morning, somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will help me and you will help us to dive into this, to see what it was that Paul was so passionate about and that you'll help us learn and let this apply to our lives here, even in Singapore. Lord, that can only happen if your Holy Spirit will illumine the word. If you'll help me, you'll help us to listen, to obey. So, Lord, we ask you. In the name of Jesus, amen. I don't know whether you are aware or not. Um, Chiming, I think you mentioned that I'm a medical doctor, worked in Chad, Africa, and we had leprosy there. And I don't know whether you are aware that leprosy exists in the world today, still today. I mean, maybe not in Singapore, but many countries of the world. And in fact, in the area that I was responsible for as a medical doctor in Chad, Lots of leprosy. In fact, one of the highest concentrations of leprosy in the world still today. So a lot of my work was treating leprosy. Now, leprosy, as you know, is a terrible disease. I mean, it not only disfigures your face and your, your, you lose your fingers, you lose your toes, but you're cast out. Still, in Chad, they cast out lepers from the community. Uh, you're ostracized. Uh, you get terrible wounds. You can die from the complications of leprosy. It's really a terrible disease. But the wonderful thing about leprosy today is that it is treatable. There, is, there are medicines for leprosy. You can cure leprosy, and it's wonderful, particularly if you catch it early. Obviously, you know, before you lose your fingers and toes, but if you catch it early, just a series of pills cured. I mean, it's like, like being Jesus, you know. You just find that leprosy patient, give them the pills, healed. No more leprosy. So it's a wonderful uh, situation 
medically speaking. But the problem is, is that when leprosy first starts, it starts just as a simple spot on your skin, just like any other spot. Um, do you have spots on your skin that you uh, <laughs> It looks just like a normal spot, and you don't know what it is. And the only way to diagnose it is you need a specialist, you need a doctor to go and to actually touch that spot because leprosy is a disease of the nerves. So the nerves in that spot are affected. And so you have to test the nerves. You have to touch the patient. You have to go to where these patients are. And so one of the roles that I had as a physician during my time there was to try to find these early cases of leprosy. I wanted these people to have this cure, this amazing cure. So I would go from village to village, the most remote villages. I mean, I went to villages so remote that the people in the village, they'd never seen a television, computer, smartphone. Uh, they'd never seen a book or a magazine. They'd never even seen a white man. And in fact, when I got out of the car, drive into the village, get out of the car, the women and children would run away because they thought I had the skin disease. <laughs> <clears throat> that was the kind of places that we used to go. The point is, though, we couldn't expect these people to come to the hospital. Some of these villages are so remote, it was like eight days on the back of a donkey. You couldn't do that just for a spot on your skin. We couldn't expect them to know what the diagnosis was. They didn't know about leprosy. Somebody had to go. Somebody had to step across geographical boundaries and cultural boundaries and linguistic boundaries and go to their village and touch their skin, and tell them the diagnosis, and offer them the cure. Now, they could refuse the cure. If we didn't go, they wouldn't have the opportunity to hear about the cure. So this, you can, of course, you can see the spiritual analogy of this leprosy illustration that I'll use throughout this talk. That is, there is a spiritual disease that's even worse than leprosy. And there are peoples who have this disease in the world and have no opportunity to hear what the cure is. The cure, of course, is Jesus. They have no opportunity unless somebody steps across and steps into. That is what I think this passage is about. This is Paul, with his passion, saying we must step across, we must step into, so that by all possible means, some might be saved. Now, you might think about this. Why do we have to, you know, surely... In my case, an American doctor takes his family, leaves America, leaves my career, goes to a little village, drives in a car, goes village by village. Surely there's a more efficient way that, to do that these days. I mean, you know, maybe we could just, you know, put something on the Internet so they can read about it. Or uh, uh, maybe um, surely there's more efficient ways to enter into that world than just a person like myself going from village to village. You know, some nights I would be in that village, and these villages are truly, I mean, this is, a, this is the kind of villages they are, thatched roofs, mud walls. I mean, these people, they still cook with uh, three rocks and sticks over a fire. In the year 2016, 17, they farm with hand-beaten iron implements. And sometimes I would sit out in those villages, and I would sit by the fire, at night, and I would think, you know, I've time traveled, you know, this is like I've gone back in time, not just to the 1950s, this is like centuries ago, here I am, you know, like the Stone Ages, cooking over rocks, and then 
sitting out by the fire with these villagers, I would hear sometimes, on occasion, more than once, the sound of an international airline, uh, jet airliner going over. Singapore Airlines, crossing, crossing Africa, going wherever. And sometimes we could see the blinking lights of this plane up there. And I thought, wow, now that's the contrast of two different worlds, isn't it? I mean, these villagers, they'd never seen a picture of an airplane. They had no idea of what was going on inside that airplane. You know, iPhones and laptop computers and movies and wine and cheese. And these villagers, they had no idea of that world. Very close, actually, only 30,000 feet between those two worlds at that point. And in that airplane, of course, those people, they had no idea of what the world was like some 30,000 feet below them, these villagers who had never had any access to any kind of technology. Now, how are you going to connect those two word, worlds? You can't expect a villager to get on Singapore Airlines and you to tell them about their disease. And if I'm a doctor on that airplane and I'm concerned about the leprosy patients below me, how am I going to, how am I going to communicate? Well, you might say, well, you just kind of you know, send them a text message and uh, tell them, you know, or put, a, put up a uh, internet site, you know, website. They can go and kind of log in and look at their... But they don't even have internet. They don't even have a smartphone. Oh, well, well maybe we just, just spread brochures, you know, just dump from the airplane, you know, just toss out brochures, and then they'll pick them up. But what language are you going to use? In Chad, there's 127 different languages. And, hello, these people don't even read. So how are you, you going to do this except... Somebody from inside that plane goes to their village and tells them, touches their are with them. And that is becoming all things to all men so that by all possible means we might save some. And that was the, that was the method of Jesus. You know, you think about Jesus, the father who wanted to give us the good news Surely there's more efficient ways to give out the good news than to send his son, one person, one geographic location, one time period. Maybe God could have, like, broadcasted in the sky, you know, put writing in the sky or sent a million angels, every angel, you know, who knows the language of a different tribe. That could have gotten the good news out. seems very inefficient to send one son to take, not even come as an adult. He came as a baby. So now you're wasting 30 years of time while this baby grows up, and then he's one nationality in one location at one time in history, surely there's more efficient ways to do it than that. Yet that is the way God the Father chose. That's the incarnation. That's the wonder of the incarnation. That is the amazing method of God, was to be incarnate and to come into our place. You know, this wonderful um, passage in Philippians, where it says, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That is the essence of incarnation. God in, in his spirit came and took on human flesh. That is uh, what this whole, I think, the passage we're going to focus on today is all about. It's about incarnational adaptation. Now, that's a big word. That's why I chose step across, step into, because you can maybe remember kind of the step across, step into more than incarnational adaptation. But it is about incarnational adaptation. It's about incarnational missions. It's about incarnational evangelism. It's about becoming 
all things, all men, so that by all possible means you might win some. And this is Paul's passion. That's why he says all, 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 all. So we're going to look at Paul's method, this incarnational method. But just before we look at that, I want us to look just for a minute at his motivation. Why? Why was Paul so radical, so extreme that he would say all things, all men, by all possible means? I might, you might expect that sentence to actually end with all, you know, all things to all men by all possible means so that I win all. But actually he says all things to all men by all possible means so that I win some. And to me, that's even more radical. I mean, he's going to do all things to all men just for a few, just so that some, just so that some. And what is it that he's so passionately wanting that some to have? What is the reason for this? Well, it's so that he might save some. Save them from what? Well, not leprosy, but what he's talking about is something worse than leprosy. There is a disease, a spiritual disease, that is worse than leprosy. You believe that? An eternal type of disease? Uh, uh, as he says, he wants to save them, it says in Romans 5, 9, from God's wrath. There is a separation from God. There is an eternity without God. There is a terrible disease, and people have that, and that's the disease of being apart from God, rebelling against God, and going your own way. And he wants to save people from that. He wants to win people away from that. You know, the other word that he uses throughout this text over and over again is the word win. I want to win the Jews. I want to win those under the law. I want to win the weak. So this win, 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 uh, that word in the Greek win is actually a it's a kind of a market term. It's a, it's a bartering term you use in the market. So, you know, old time you would barter, you would give them something, they would give you something. And so it's a win if you give them something good and they give you something better. So it's a win kind of situation. You trade something lesser and you get the greater. Trade in your bicycle, you get a Lamborghini. You trade in a, a rock off the street, you get a diamond. That's the wonder of the gospel. You trade in eternal separation from God, the wrath of God, and you get eternal life, the love of God. That's a win. You trade in something lesser, you get something greater. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's what Paul was so captivated by. And I think this is the motivation of Paul. If you had to describe it in one word or one phrase, I would say Paul was captivated by the wonder of the gospel. Somehow, he just got so pumped up so excited, so motivated by the wonder of this win, this trade, that he would give up all things, become all things, so that some, even some, could know the wonder of the gospel. You know, um, Miriam, who you know, uh, and I had the privilege of going to this huge congress called the Lausanne Congress of World Evangelization, 2010 in Cape Town. There were delegates from every country in the world, mission leaders, uh, pastors, denominational heads. And during one of the plenary sessions, one of the speakers, a man named Ajith Fernando, I don't know whether you've ever heard of Ajith Fernando, he's a Sri Lankan theologian, Youth for Christ leader, was. Anyway, he was speaking at the plenary session. He said to us, he said, never forget the wonder of the gospel. He said, you pastors and you missionaries, you know the facts of the gospel. You know how to tell the gospel. You know the truth of the gospel. But don't forget the 
the beauty of the gospel, the majesty of the gospel. Don't forget the wonder of the gospel. Don't ever lose your sense of amazement at the gospel. That is what Paul was so passionate about. He didn't lose that wonder of the gospel. He says at the end of this passage, he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. He loved the gospel. He wanted people to know the gospel. So this is what motivated Paul. Save people from wrath of God. Give them that trade in that would be useful for them. That's Paul's motivation. But what was his method? That's really what this passage is about. It's about these different phrases. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the, I became a slave. I became un, under the law. What does that really mean? In our context for today, what would be relevant for you and for me? Well, I, I've tried to kind of use different terms, try to think about what is the essence of what he's saying. And in this first verse here, he says, I have become a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What does that mean? I'm a slave to everyone. What does that re- what's the essence? Well, I think it means he stepped across the barrier of rights, his rights. Because I think that's, in a, in a sense, that's the essence of slavery is you give up your rights. You have more, no more rights. You dedicate yourself fully to the rights of somebody else, your master. So your rights no longer the master's rights. That's the essence, I think, of slavery. He's giving up his rights. And, of course, also the context of this passage, I think, speaks of rights. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 9, he's talking about the rights of an apostle. And he says in verse 4, don't we have the right to food or drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife with us? Don't we have this right? Don't we? And the answer to those questions is yes. Yes, you have that right. Yeah, you have the right to food and drink. Yes, you have the right to a believing wife. Sure. So it's not a question of do you have the right. The question is how you use those rights. And Paul says in verse 15, right before our passage, but I have not used any of these rights. So Paul has given up something lesser for something greater. You know, I think in today's context, rights, my rights has become a big deal. Um, I don't know how much it is in Singapore, but it certainly is in America. You know, it's all about my rights. You know, my right to have an abortion, my right to carry a gun, my right for free speech, my right for that. And it's like rights has become the ultimate explanation. It's become the ultimate justification of everything. It's my right. Oh, why are you doing it? It's my right. I have the right. Why? I don't have the rights. Have, my rights have become huge in the world today. And it's true. We do have rights. I mean, you have rights. Singaporeans, you have the right to good education and the right to health care and the right to a good salary and a right to HDB and a CPF and a right to a Lamborghini, right? You are, you're all going to get... But you do have some right. You have rights. There's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, what will you do with those rights? Will you hold on to those rights as your lesser treasure? I think the point of what Paul is saying here is, I became a slave to everyone. I gave up my rights. I found something greater. Because I counted everything as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. I became a slave to everyone. I cared about now their rights. That was, I think, the point. You know, I had, uh, as a doctor, I was responsible 
for 175,000 people. Uh, so I was a busy guy. Uh, fortunately, they didn't all come to the hospital the same day. But I was always busy and I had patients lined up, and then I would have emergency surgery at night, and I'd be up all night doing operations, and the next day I'd be having to see more patients. And then right as I was getting ready to go home, collapse on the bed, another emergency surgery would come in, and I'd have to do surgery again. So I, I became very tired. And even, even at home, people when I would go home, people would come to my house. They wanted you know medicine from the doctor at the, his house, and so they would be there at the door. So finally, on one occasion, I was so tired, I said to my wife and kids, I just need a, I'm just going to take a walk, you know, just get out of the house and go. This, it's a small village we lived in, so I thought if I could just make myself out to the outskirts of the village, I could just walk among the sand dunes and the kind of scrub brush area. So I was trying to kind of clandestinely making my way through the streets because I'm the only white guy in the streets, so everybody knows who I am, so I'm kind of making my way trying to get to this edge of the village, and right as I'm about to get to the edge of the village, some lady starts saying, doctor, 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 come, 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 help, help, come, come. So everything inside of me said, don't I have the right to have a little time off? Don't I have the right to just, you know, a little personal Lewis time? I mean, I, I just, I, doctor needs to be refreshed. I need, you know, fortunately, I didn't say all these things. Fortunately, I had the grace of God to step across that boundary of my rights, care about their rights, her rights. So I went into their little concession and I saw terrible condition. Everything was in disarray. The children were unclean and, and thin, like they had ha not had much to eat. And uh, this was a mother. There was no man in the family and the mother and her kids. And then she had her mother, the grandmother. She took me into this hut where the grandmother was lying bed, bed in the bed, couldn't get up. She had this huge cancerous tumor on her leg and just eyes, and just terrible situation. She couldn't walk. They couldn't get her to the hospital because there's no taxi service there, no Uber or Grab Taxi. They just, just paralyzed by not knowing what to do. And finally, she saw the doctor walking by, and that was her opportunity. So she called me in. So I went home, got my vehicle, and went back and loaded the grandmother in the vehicle, took her to the hospital, put her on IV fluids, and then after a couple of days did the surgery that, removed the cancer, and after a couple of weeks, the grandmother got well, and she got up and was able to walk around, and then she went home, and a couple of months later, uh, I was making my way out of the village to try to have a little break, and once again, I hear, doctor, doctor, <laughs> but this time, she wanted to thank me. She wanted me to see the difference in her life, and she wa I walked in, and now her kids are healthy, and everything is clean, and grandmother's walking around taking care of the kids so she can go out to the, do her farming and provide food for the family. That was a situation where I had rights. I had the right to have a little time off. Somehow at that moment, there was something bigger than my rights. There was something more important than my rights. That was to think about the rights of somebody else. And I think this is the point of Paul. He said, he made himself a slave. Everyone. He gave up his rights. And he thought about their rights. And there are unreached peoples. This was a physical uh, demonstration with this lady with the tumor, but there are unreached peoples who have the right to hear about the cure for their spiritual disease. People dying without Christ. People who have the disease of the wrath of God, and they have no idea. Their whole village, no one in their village knows the cure. No one in their whole group of villages. No one in their whole group of people 
And that's what we call an unreached people group, a group of people from which there is nobody in that group of people that can tell them the cure for their disease, that can tell them the cure of Jesus. So in that case, somebody must go and give these people the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Now, they could refuse, like you could refuse the leprosy medicine. Somebody must go and give them a choice and an opportunity and an access. And this next <coughs> video, uh, it's, it's not to promote WEC, but it, I love this young guy, his passion for this kind of thing. He is passionate that the unreached have, an, have choice and have access and have opportunity to hear about Christ. So just listen to his passion for this exact thing about rights. We're working to share the gospel with the remaining unreached people groups as quickly as possible by planting local churches that will multiply. 1.7 billion people are unreached, going to hell. No choice, no access, no opportunity. Someone needs to enter that community and share stories of Jesus so that we can plant churches that multiply and reach not just that community, but that people group and eventually the entire world. We believe that someone needs to share the stories of Christ with their unreached people. We believe that someone needs to walk alongside these people that are eager to learn. We believe that someone needs to gather these people into local groups that we call churches. We give unreached people choice, access, opportunity to hear about Christ. Wake. Reaching people, planting churches. And it, almost as good as your evangelism explosion uh, video we just saw. Uh, that was a great video, by the way. I love that. Um, so the point is, this guy is passionate that unreached peoples have a chance, that they have an opportunity. Paul was passionate that unreached peoples, people who don't know Christ, have the opportunity. And so he was willing to become a slave. He was willing to cross the barrier of his own rights. That was the first point. I think that's what he meant by I become a slave to everyone. The second point is that Paul stepped across the barrier of culture. Now, it's interesting. In verse uh, 20, he says, Paul says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. Now, let me ask you, what uh, ethnicity was Paul? Jew. So what's he talking about here? I mean, like me saying, okay, and now I'm an American, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of be an American for a little while so that I can reach Americans. I mean, what's that about? I think this is Paul speaking about culture. Somehow, whatever it takes to be Jewish, somehow it, whatever it takes to enter into the world of Jewish culture, he will do even more so that he can reach people. And I don't know exactly what that meant for him, whether it meant going to the synagogues where they congregate, whether it means eating their food. But I think incarnational adaptation, doing incarnational missions or incarnational evangelism, means going, crossing this barrier of culture. It means going to where, learning their language, eating their food. I think when you go to a, another place and learn their culture, you are stepping across a barrier into their world. Um, when I was... When, I, when I'd go out on these bush trips, I would go to these really remote villages, and sometimes I would arrive late at night or late in the afternoon, usually, before dark. And so the villagers would 
uh, prepare quickly a meal for me and my team. And usually they would kill a goat. That was the standard thing. They'd grab a goat and they'd kill it. And then they would uh, roast the meat. But the first thing before we had the roasted meat, they would take out all the stuff in the insides, you know, all the intestines and heart and kidney and lungs and everything. And they'd chop it all up, put it in a pot and boil it. So you've got these boiled goat intestines. And uh, they would bring it to you as the first dish. That was the first dish because the meat was still roasting over the fire. And actually it tasted pretty good. Uh, you guys would probably like uh, roasted goat intestines, uh, boiled goat intestines, actually. But the problem for me was not that. It was The problem was they would save a little portion of that for my breakfast in the morning. And they would take a little portion, they'd put it to the side. There's no refrigeration there, so it just kind of sat out, kind of in the heat all night long, kind of fermenting, and the kind of fat kind of congealed in the bowl. And so come breakfast time, they up here, Dr. Louis, here's your breakfast. I'm like, oh, I just want a cup of coffee and a donut. Uh, (laughs) But I ate it. I ate it because you become all things to all people. And this is the point of the gospel. This is the point of adaptation. You know, I just say the missionary prayer. You know the missionary prayer? Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. (laughs) So you just say that prayer. And you eat it because it makes a difference to them. Uh, this, is, this is stepping across into their world. In fact, they would, they would give me water to drink, and their water was dirty water. You could see that they got it out of a, a well or a lake or something, and you could see the dirt. But I drank the water. I mean, I had a big container of water in my vehicle, so most of my water was from the vehicle. When they hand you the bowl, what are you going to do with it? Refuse to drink? No, you drink. Drink the water. And oftentimes, after these bush trips of four to five days on the bush, I would come back to um, my home, and I would be violently ill, vomiting, diarrhea, vomiting, diarrhea. And it would take a day or two to recover from that, back out in the bush. Eventually, my immune system got strong enough, so I didn't have that kind of reaction. But the point is, you're stepping across. You're stepping towards them. We had... One of my things was to build clinics, these, these dispensaries out in the bush, and so I needed to find money to build the building and got it from different places. And one place was the European Economic Community. Had, they had a grant in aid for building these little clinics in Africa. So I got some money from the EU, and I built this clinic. And after the grant was finished, the EU people, the bigwigs there, said, we want to come visit, see this clinic. So I arranged everything, and they flew in from Brussels, and they came all the way to our little village, and I got them in my vehicle and went out on the appointed day. And the villagers, this little tiny village, they had gone to so much effort. They had killed goats, and they had killed chickens, and they had made this huge feast for these guests. And the guys got there, and they didn't touch a thing. They refused everything. They wouldn't even drink the tea, the hot tea. You could, that's plenty safe. I understand if you don't want to drink the water, but... Completely refused. Now, how do you think the villagers felt? Had they connected in some way? If these EU guys had some message they wanted to give them and convince them of, do you think, how would that message have been received? You know, one of the things that one of the commentaries talks about, what Paul is trying to do here, becoming all things to all people, is he's trying to approach people from their most accessible side. And I like that. It's not that you're changing the message, the essence of the message. It's not that you're 
trying to compromise your values. It's you're trying to approach people from their most accessible side. And I think, in all honesty, sometimes our most accessible side is across a table of food, across a bowl of laksa, or nasi goreng, or, na, or nasi lemak. Or so. that's, that's our love language. That's how we communicate. That's how we relax. That's the key into people's hearts. And so if you don't eat the food, you're not getting the key into people's hearts. So this is a part of what Paul said. I become all things to all men. I eat all things so that by some possible means I might save some. That's the second point of incarnational adaptation. The third point has to do, I think this cultural adaptation has to do is a kind of a collective thing. It's the group. It's the the norms of the group. But he also was concerned about the individual, the individual person. And I think this is where this verse about in 20 and 21, I become like those under the law, I become like one under the law. And those not under the law, I become as one not under the law. So I think he's thinking about how people, personal perspective, how they approach things from a personal point of view. He cared about the culture, but he also wanted to step across the barrier of personal perspectives and approach them from the most accessible side. Now, these principles, I think, this is incarnational missions, of course, but it's also incarnational evangelism. This is how you in Singapore, this is how we can live out incarnationally in the midst of studies and work in Singapore. And this is a simple illustration. It's not a great illustration, but... It's a real, authentic illustration. It just happened to me two weeks ago. So I'm getting ready on Sunday morning to go to church. Um, my church here is Church of Singapore. So I get in the taxi, and I tell the taxi driver, uh, can you take me to Church of Singapore? And I gave him the address, you know, 145 Marine Parade. And he said, church, ah, uh, I don't, don't talk to me about church. Uh, don't talk to me about temples or mosques or any, any of that. He said, um, I... Just give me my cigarettes and my alcohol, and I'm happy. He said, I believe in life we should just do what we enjoy doing. Don't talk to me about church. So now how do you respond to that? What's his, I don't think, that, what, you have to think, what is his perspective now? What is his perspective? What's his most accessible side at this moment? And I don't think the, the best response would have been, what the Bible says. <laughs> so... My response, I'm not sure it was a perfect response, but I said, I think his paradigm right now, he's working on this paradigm of joy versus religion. And I said, you know, that's exactly why I'm going to church, because I enjoy church. I get a lot of joy from going to church. He was silent. I think somehow it took away his arguments against religion, because he thought joy was over here and religion was over there. And now somehow I'm seeing them together. And so... In some subtle way, well, he was silent for a little bit, and then he said, well, I, I do go to temple sometimes. I'm a, I'm a Sikh. And uh, so, I, in fact, I've been to the Golden Temple in India, and I had to wait seven hours in line to get into the temple. And then he started talking about Sikh uh, religion. So I let him go on for a while, and we talked about, I asked him questions about Sikhism and what, you know, what happens when you go in the temple and things like that. Near the end of the ride, now we're about to arrive at Church of Singapore, he said, well, the bottom line is, I think there's just one God. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Jesus. Some people call him Allah. And it just doesn't matter. Now, how do you respond to that? So I, I joked to myself, I had the perfect response about 30 minutes after I got out of the cab. 
that's usually the case, isn't it? You think about something, you think, oh, right on the spot. You don't, you don't think about what's the right answer. But you think about it later, you think, okay, I should have said this. Anyway, now I'm sure you guys could have responded much better than I responded. So this is not a perfect response. But anyway, my response to him was, so I'm thinking, okay, this guy's personal perspective is a one God kind of perspective. That's where we can kind of meet up together. So I said, you know, if there is just one God, then that one God has the right to determine what is truth and what is not, right? He said, yeah, 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 that's right. And that one God has the right to determine how we as humans have access to him, how we come to him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then our job, our role as humans is to discover that truth and to discover how he has said he wants us to come to him, how he's provided for us to come to him. So at that point, he said, oh, uh, end of taxi, pay me nine twenty or whatever it was uh, for the taxi. So I'm not sure his, he was moved to uh, repentance, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the point of that is I was doing, trying at least in my humble way to do incarnational evangelism, to try to approach him from his most accessible side. I was trying to become all things to all people so that by some means some might be saved. And so that is the barrier, I think, that Paul was talking about. Thirdly, is he approached, he, he stepped across the barrier of personal perspectives. And then lastly, his fourth point was, I think he stepped into their deepest need. Now, I wasn't exactly sure how to, this is, comes from the verse where he says, to the weak I have become weak. To win the weak. So what does that mean? What is he really talking about? To the weak, I become weak. I don't think that means he all quits weightlifting or he, you know, cancels his gym membership or, you know. Uh, it's not about physical weakness, is it? He's already talked in that passage about the weak brother, the brother with the weak conscience. And this is a, a weakness of struggle, of internal struggle. These are brothers who are struggling about what is right. Can I eat this food that's been offered to idols or not? And seeing other people eat it makes me struggle, and I'm doubting, and I'm so that's a that's a deep kind of weakness, and I think this is where he's talking about. And he's also saying um, weakness in the sense of lack of strength. I mean, it's interesting. This Greek word means uh, asthenes. It means having no strength, having no power. So it's powerlessness. The real weakness. And he identifies with people at the level of powerlessness. Um, it's interesting that he says, to the weak, I become weak. You know, in every other instance, he says, I become like. I become like a Jew, like one under the law, like uh, a slave. And yet in this case, he doesn't say like a weak person. He says, I become weak. So this is deep identification. This is identifying with people at the deepest of level of their powerlessness. And I think power is a big issue for us. You know, we talked about rights. Rights has become big. Power is a big issue. One of you want to be a powerful nation or a powerful leader or a powerful person or a powerful speaker or whatever. Power has become this big, big issue. And sometimes, unfortunately, I think we in missions, we have done missions from a position of power. Like, I know the answers. You don't know the answers, so let me tell you. Or I have things. You don't have things, so let me give to you. It's kind of a position of power to the powerless. And it's a position of above, down. And actually, you know, Jesus talks about 
in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. So in a very real way, Jesus is saying there's a different kind of power. This is powerful, but it's a, it's a different kind of power. It's an incarnational power. It's a coming alongside power. It's a sitting. It's identifying with people in their deepest need kind of power. That's, I think, what Paul was saying. We become weak, meaning we identify with people's deepest needs. Uh, you know, I was um, oftentimes beyond my limits as a medical doctor as to how to treat people. We had no electricity, no running water, no lab tests, no technology in the hospital, so I had just had medicines, basic medicines. And it was always very difficult when I ran, I was at the limit of what I could do medically. And on this one particular occasion, I had a young man who had asthma, would frequently come to the hospital and I would treat him for his asthma, give him medicines, he would get better and he'd go home. On this one particular occasion, he, got, he came to the hospital and the asthma was so bad, I gave him every medicine I had, I even tried different medicines, basically it was at my limit and he was getting worse and worse and worse. At that point in an American or Singapore hospital, we'd put him on a ventilator, have a ventilator. So basically this young man in his 30s was going to die from asthma. So at that point, I took on not the role of a doctor, but I took on the role basically as his friend because he had a very deep need. He was lonely. He was fearful. And he needed somebody to be with him. And so I basically just sat on his bedside. I sat with him and I held his hand and I mopped his brow and I spent the whole night with him uh, until he eventually passed away. That, I think, is the kind of thing. This is what we do. Incarnational living is not just, you know, when, I, when it's convenient for me, I think I'll have time to do this program on this evening. This is deep stuff. This is becoming weak to the weak. This is, this is incarnational living at its deepest level. And this is what Paul is so willing to do because he's so passionate about the wonder of the gospel. He said, I'm willing. I'm willing to give up my rights. I'm willing to cross barriers of culture. And I'm willing to cross barriers of perspective. And I'm willing even to become weak with those who are weak. So wonderful is the gospel. You know, uh, I think that is the basic message of this passage. The basic message is incarnational adaptation. And you think, surely there would be a better way. Surely there could be a more efficient way than this. But this is what Jesus did. Jesus did this at every level. Jesus stepped across the barrier of his rights. You know, it says in that passage in Philippians, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That was his right. He could have been stayed equal with God in that place in heaven. But he didn't consider his right. He considered something bigger. So he came and took the form of a slave, actually, the same word the form of a servant, of a slave. And Jesus stepped across barriers of culture. And he became a Jew. He was actually a Jew. He looked like a Jew. You know, the woman at the well, Jesus was sitting at the well. The woman at the well comes up to him, only has one sentence from Jesus. He says, give me to drink. And then her next sentence is, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How is it that you ask me for water? But she knew. How did she know he was a Jew? Because he looked like a Jew. He had the facial features of a Jew. He spoke like a Jew. He wore the clothes of a Jew. He stepped across a cultural barrier. He stepped across the, the barrier of personal preferences. To those under the law, he became like under the law. He was baptized. 
He went to Jerusalem at the appointed days. He celebrated the appointed Jewish feasts. Those not under the law, he was like, he was like one not under the law. He ate with Gentiles. He healed people on the Sabbath. This is Jesus stepping across, stepping into our world. And, of course, you know, Jesus stepped into our deepest needs. He identified with us on every level. Temptations, weakness, pain, suffering, separation, every level, Jesus identified with us. That's incarnation. And and surely we think there must be some more efficient way. No, this is the way of Jesus. And in fact, when you think about incarnation, basically a simple definition of incarnation is God sent his son and Jesus came into our village. He came into our village of the world because he knew we had a disease that was worse than leprosy. And he knew we needed a cure and the cure was him. And we wouldn't have discovered the cure in any other way. So he came and he stepped across boundaries. He stepped into our culture and our world and our weakness. Then, when Jesus was about to leave, he gave us a commission. And he said in John chapter 20, he said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So he says, in the same manner as, in the same method, in the same incarnational adaptation method, I am sending you. So God, Jesus has not given us some super efficient, we just... uh, you know, toss out tracks from the airplane kind of method. He's given us the incarnational method. That is a, a method where we become captivated with the gospel to the point where we are willing to give up our rights for something greater. We give up something less and we get something greater. We cross boundaries of culture and language. We go and live among these unreached peoples who have no other way to know about the wonder of the gospel Somebody like the leprosy patient, somebody has to go to them. Somebody has to touch their lives with the love of Christ. Somebody has to tell them the diagnosis of their spiritual disease and offer them the cure of Jesus. So the question is, are you one of those people? God speaking to you in some way that this is a role that you need to play. Just think about that as I close this in prayer. I think I don't know how the Lord might have spoken to you in a small way, maybe just... Uh, the examples of living incarnationally, trying to access people from their most accessible side. Maybe it'll stir you up in a small way. Maybe it'll stir up us to support those who are called to go and live incarnationally among another culture and another language. But maybe, maybe in some way the Lord is stirring up in your heart, in your soul, you you want to trade in your rights. You want to trade in what's lesser for something greater. That's to care about other people. Lord, I do now thank you for your word. Love us enough to teach us. Love us enough to draw us to yourself and give us these examples. Thank you, Jesus. Amazing example of incarnational living. So, Lord, thank you for Paul, who was captivated by the gospel. And, Lord, Uh, Yeah, I want to be likewise captivated with the gospel. I want my brothers and sisters in this room to be captivated by the gospel. Will you do that by the Holy Spirit? Somehow stir up our hearts again to the wonder of the gospel. Then, Lord, make us willing, willing to step across and step into. Lord, make us willing to trade in our own personal rights for something much greater. Us to be willing to step across boundaries of culture, 
personal perspective, even to the point of stepping into people's deepest need, their weakness. So, Lord, I thank you for this moment. I just trust that you will speak to my brothers and sisters. You know what you want to do in their lives. You know what message you want to give them. You know what you want to do in them. But I pray that every one of them will be incarnational in the way they live. For the glory of your name. In Jesus' name.